Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to Baldhead Bible Podcast, making the Bible come to life, featuring the expository story preaching of Dr. John Katzian. Daniel and his four friends looked around. All the other young men from Israel were eating the food put before him. But Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all knew that the food that they were given to eat broke covenant law. It broke the Old Testament law. A lot of the food they were given to eat wasn't kosher. It wasn't correct. And probably most importantly to Daniel and his friends was a lot of this meat was offered to idols, offered in worship to other gods. And that's in direct violation of what Yahweh had commanded of his people. And And these boys all knew it, but they were eating. They were just going along. For Daniel and his friends to step up and say, this is wrong. We can't do this, sir. That's going to take a lot of guts because what if they get killed? And like I said, everybody else is doing it. Why shouldn't they? Daniel and his friends, I think they looked at each other. I think they knew that it was better to follow God and better to do what was right, no matter what the cost. And as it says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved. And that same resolve wasn't just with Daniel. It was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they resolved that they would not defile themselves and that they would rather stand with righteousness and obey Yahweh than to give in and go along. So Daniel was a spokesman for the group. He knew they couldn't eat the food. He pushed the plate of food away from him and I'm sure he looks over and he sees the chief of the eunuchs. Now the Bible doesn't say what his name is, but The man had a lot of power. He was in charge of all these young men. Daniel probably, do I do it? Do I walk over there? Do I make my request? What's going to happen? You know, I think we've all been there, right? And last time we left Daniel, he couldn't eat of that meat, right? He drew that line in the sand. He knew that he had to stand for God no matter what. He had to stand for the truth of Yahweh no matter what. And he resolved last week, well, now he's got to do it. And what you what you, you know, can think in the dark or on your own, sometimes it's hard to do in the light of public opinion and the light of others. And would he be brave enough? Well, what we're going to see in the story of Daniel in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we're going to see that standing for truth is the only way to live. 
Just stand for God and don't worry about the consequences. Stand for what you know is right and let the consequences fall how they may because it is better to obey God. That's a truth throughout Scripture, right? That it is better to obey God. You hear that in the New Testament as well as the Old, and here we're going to see it in the life of Daniel. Well, Daniel looks at his friends and says, all right, I'm going to go talk to the chief of the eunuchs. Are you with me? I can imagine him saying, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you, you go do it, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, you go talk to him. Daniel gets up, and he walks over, and he maybe taps the chief of the eunuchs on the shoulder, and the chief turns around, and, oh, it's Daniel. Oh, man, he's one of the brightest, one of the best of all the boys they took from Israel is what he's thinking. Now, how do you say, how, how do I know that, that that the chief of the eunuch is thinking that, you know, oh, wow, Daniel is one of the best. Well, look at verse 9. It says, Daniel chapter 1, verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God is working behind the scenes in the heart of this official, so that when Daniel comes to talk to him, he's already got compassion and favor. This official is looking kindly upon Daniel because of Daniel's character. Daniel probably worked hard, did what was right no matter what, no matter who was looking. But ultimately, it was God who said, if you stand for truth, Daniel, I'm going to be working behind the scenes. I'm going to be changing people's heart. Just do what's right, Daniel. Well, Daniel chose to do what was right. And he said, hey, could we not eat of the meat that is given to us? We can't eat of, of this food because it goes against our law. Could we please not eat of it? And the chief of the eunuchs, he says in reply, I fear my lord, the king. You know, I can't not give you this food, Daniel, because this is our finest food. This is the best steak. This is the best bread. This is the best vegetables, best potato, whatever we're eating here. This is the best of the best. And if I don't give you this food, Daniel, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to endanger my own head because the king is going to look at all the other youth. Oh, look how well fed they are. And if I don't feed you this stuff, you're not going to look as good as them. And then I might lose my job. It says there he might even danger his own head. He might get in trouble. So Daniel goes back and tells his friends that, well, the chief of the eunuchs isn't going to do anything. I don't think the average person would have given up at that point. I would have been like, oh, well, what do we do? I guess we just starve to death. Maybe if we go on a hunger strike, I don't know. Well, Daniel does what is right. And instead of going just giving up and, well, if the chief official won't do it, instead he goes to his second in command, the guy just below the chief of the eunuchs. His name is simply the steward, verse 11. And he goes to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had put over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he goes to the steward, who's just under the chief of the eunuchs, and says, hey, could you test us for the next 10 days? Just test us and give us nothing but vegetables and water to drink. 
And, and then check us out. Maybe check to see what our fat weight body percentage is. Do our eyes look brighter? Skin looks better? You know, just test us for the next 10 days and check our appearance to the others who are eating your food. And if we're not better looking and healthier than all those who are eating the king's food, then we'll go back to eating the king's food. So the chief of the stewards is like, all right, that's a good compromise, right? You know, not seeing them starve to death and not forcing this food on them. All right, for the next 10 days, I'll test you. So for the next 10 days, the boys got water. They got carrots and corn and tomatoes and, you know, broccoli and more broccoli and cauliflower and green beans and lettuce. I mean, that to me sounds like a pretty boring meal, but they were doing what was right. They were obeying the Lord. I mean, if this is all they can do, if this is all they can eat and not break God's laws of dietary laws, if this is all they can do, they're doing the best they can in the situation they find themselves. Well, I wonder, you know, a first day for breakfast, they get water, lots of broccolis and carrots. For lunch, they get water, lots of broccoli, a little bit of carrot, and hey, let's throw in some cauliflower. For supper, lots of broccoli, lots of water, and then maybe, you know, maybe they threw in some squash. I don't know if that's a vegetable, but, you know, I don't even know if they would have that back then. But can you imagine they did this for 10 straight days? And I keep thinking, man, they're praying. Lord, you know, I just hope that this works, you know. And I, I, I can imagine that, you know, no matter what they're saying, I'm going to obey you, God. I'm going to obey what your word says. Well, on the 10th day, on the 10th day, they come and they check the young men, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The steward looks at them. And then he brings the chief of the eunuchs over and he goes, look, look at these guys. And he goes, what? Well, they're looking great. See, I told you guys, if you ate the king's food, everything would be great. And the chief of the eunuchs saying, you imagine the steward turning to him and saying, no. I've been testing him for the past 10 days. And I've been giving them nothing but vegetable and water. And look, look how much better they look. It says there that they were better in appearance in verse 15 and fatter in flesh than all the other youth who ate all the king's food. And I can imagine the chief of the eunuchs looking around and saying, you know what? You are right. In fact, they're so much better looking. Take away all the meat, all the other stuff. We're going to give everybody here nothing but water and vegetables. Now, I don't know if that's great, but because of what Daniel and his friends did, standing for right, the Lord rewarded them, and they looked so much better. Now, everybody's stuck drinking water and vegetables, which to me doesn't sound that great, but better to obey God, right, than to obey man. And I can imagine that brought in the sweetest of vegetables and the best water. And it says that eventually all the young Jewish men were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were tested in everything that they had learned and all the skills of wisdom and literature 
and all that other stuff they learned and the Chaldean magic and all that. They were tested in all of this and whether they had understanding, it says in verse 17, of visions and dreams. And I can imagine they took this final big SAT test or ACT test or whatever the Babylonian measurement, the BCT test, you know, at the final end of their three years. And guess who scored top of the class? Daniel, boom. Shadrach, boom. Abednego, boom. Daniel and his three friends, those four guys scored top of the class. Not only that, it says they were 10 times better than all the magicians and all the enchanters that were in all the kingdom. Man, isn't it great? Isn't it great? Wouldn't it be encouraging to read this? Now, remember, the people reading this book are people in exile. They are, they are people who are maybe struggling under Babylonian rule there in exile. Or maybe they're on their way back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Maybe they're getting discouraged about rebuilding the wall and rebuilding whatever's left there of Jerusalem. And I think people in exile can get discouraged because they feel like you're forgotten. And here you see a story of how God is working behind the scenes to work in officials' hearts, pagan Gentile officials who don't know Yahweh. Yahweh is working. And at the end of all this course of study, Yahweh's working again, and Daniel and his friends are the smartest and the best. Just obey God. Trust him. Don't give up. Somebody reading the story is encouraged in the middle of their life. Well, Daniel and his friends are raised up to some of the highest points of government. And it says there in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, early on in his reign, all of a sudden King Nebuchadnezzar goes to sleep. And he's tired. It's all been a long day of making decisions, sitting on his throne, chopping people's heads off, collecting taxes, deciding who to invade next. And he goes to sleep. And then he sees it. that's horrific. That's the most scary thing I've ever seen. And, you know, he wakes up and he remembers this vivid dream. And, whoa, what did I eat? Man, I've got to make sure not to eat. I might have to try that new Daniel diet. You know, nothing but water and vegetables. I might have to do that, you know. The next day he goes to sleep after a hard day's work. And in the middle of his deep sleep, he begins to dream. Here comes that dream again. And here comes that horrific image. And oh, what happens to that image? Oh, no, please, I can't imagine. What in the world is this? This is so scary. And maybe for the next three nights, maybe for a week. It doesn't say how long. But I do think this dream showed up repeatedly. And I think this dream began to trouble King Nebuchadnezzar because it says in chapter 2, verse 1, that his spirit was troubled to the point where he couldn't sleep anymore. He didn't want to go to sleep because he'd dream that dream again and he'd see that image again and he would be troubled in spirit again and he'd be scared again. And no, I don't want that. 
You can imagine instead of going to sleep, he starts pacing the floor and then he starts to get tired and he falls asleep. And he, I can't fall asleep. I've got to stay awake. And his eyes get heavy and he starts to fall asleep. And he goes, I know I can't fall asleep. I've got to stay awake. I've got to stay awake. And he falls asleep. And here comes that dream again. Here comes that enormous image that scares him. I can't believe what I see there. What's that around the feet? What's that thing coming? Coming straight at me. Then he wakes up and he's like, oh, I fell asleep. And he's like, all right, this is it. It says in verse 2, he calls all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. He calls them all. And he says, guys, I want you to interpret my dream. Now remember that. He calls magicians who can make things and, and turn things into water or, or make sticks turned into snakes and they use weird things to try to interpret the future and then enchanters and sorcerers and they all work in the netherworld and how much of it is true we don't know but I think some of them inhabited and worked with demonic spirits and then it says and the Chaldeans which that word literally came to mean magician because the Chaldeans were so given to try to use astrology and, and try to use sorcery and try to read tea leaves and guts of sheep and all other things to understand the future. Sorcerer, enchanter. Do you know what also is interesting? Where it says, and the Chaldeans he summoned to tell him his dream right there in verse 2, you know. And then later on in verse 4, it says, Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 7, verse 28, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. Now, chapter 1 up through chapter 2, verse 3, is written in Hebrew. And then from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 28, it's written in Aramaic. And I think the reason is because, number one, the Chaldeans spoke Aramaic. But number two, I think the main reason was God wanted the world to see and to hear what he was doing and how mighty a God he was. See, back then, when this book was written, Aramaic was the international trade language that everybody spoke. If you wanted to trade anywhere, you had to be able to speak Aramaic. It's sort of like English today. Various other countries, you know, like Japan or China or France or Germany, they have their own language, but then they also know a little bit of English. Why? Because that's where a lot of the trading is done is in English-speaking countries. So, you better learn English. And it's the same thing back then. If you wanted to do some trading internationally, you'd better know Aramaic. And I think God said, I want this portion of the book to be written in Aramaic because I don't want just my chosen people to be able to read it. In the next couple chapters, I'm going to be showing God working in the heart of a pagan king. I'm going to show the world that I the God of the Jewish people, Yahweh, 
am the God of all gods, and I can go wherever I want. I raise up kings, I tear them down, and man, the story gets good, and I want the whole world to be able to hear it. So, the God, you know, guess what? The rest of this book. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar, he calls all the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers. He's sick of this dream. And he says, all right, I want you to interpret my dream. Interpret it. So the magicians look at each other and the sorcerers look at each other and they're like, all right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we can do that, king. Yeah, yeah. All right, you tell us the dream and we will interpret it. Just tell us the dream. All right, all right. Get out your pads of paper, guys. Get out your clay tablets. Let's start writing this thing down. All right, go to it, king. And then King Nebuchadnezzar drops a bombshell. He says, I am not going to tell you my dream. If you guys are so good, this is essentially what he says to him. If you guys are so good, if your interpretations are so accurate, you not only should be able to tell the future, right, interpret my dream, but you should be able to look into the past and tell me what my dream was. I'm worried that if I tell you my dream, you'll just interpret it in a way that'll benefit me and therefore I'll give you lots of money and give you things because you'll make me look good in your interpretation. This dream is so scary. I want a real answer, not some made up one that's just going to try to please me. This thing scares me so bad. I want a real answer. So guess what? To make sure I get a real answer out of you, I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. You've got to tell me what that dream was and you've got to give me the interpretation of it. They looked at each other and I can imagine one of them finally spoke up and said, we can't do that, King. I mean, nobody's ever done that. that, that, That's an impossibility. How are we supposed to do that? And the King said, If you can tell me what my dream was and then interpret it, I'll give you wealth beyond wealth. I'll raise you up so high, nobody will be higher than you if you can do that. But if you can't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And I can imagine the gulp, you know, they they swallow and they're like, man, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place because I could make up some sort of dream. But if I'm wrong, I'm dead. But man, if I could do it, man, I'd be rich. And I can imagine some of them looked at their tea bowls and maybe ran their finger around in it a little bit. Do I see anything? Do I see anything? I can imagine somebody went, oh, you know, close their eyes, try to get deep and think, no, nothing. I don't see a thing and I'm too scared to say anything. And finally, the king is like, I am absolutely furious with you guys. You're all charlatans is what he's thinking. Now, some people think a lot of the magician class back then were leftovers from Nebuchadnezzar's dad's day. You know, the king that Nebuchadnezzar took over from was his dad. And and many people think Nebuchadnezzar was sick of that old magician class and they didn't know anything. Because at this point, Nebuchadnezzar is so angry and furious. He says, you know what? I'm going to kill you all. 
you guys are all done. And he sent out an order that all of the magician class, all of those sorcerers, all of those enchanters, all of those magicians, all of what the Bible calls wise men were to be killed. I want them all killed, says Nebuchadnezzar. The number one, he was really furious because he knew most of their interpretations were just to try to get money out of him. And number two, he was really scared of this dream. And that's how serious he was. And number three, Nebuchadnezzar just made some rash decisions. I mean, you're going to kill the whole class of wise men just because they can't interpret a dream which they haven't even heard and they're supposed to think back and know what that was. I mean, that's an impossibility. But instead of thinking it through, he just rashly says, hey, I want them all killed. Well, guess what? They all ran out of the room really fast, I'm sure. And they all went to go hide. But you know who else got caught up in all that? Daniel and his three friends. Because it says right there in in Daniel chapter 2, verse 12, because of the king's angry decree that all these wise men were to be killed, they were also seeking Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, it seems like Daniel wasn't at this initial meeting when Nebuchadnezzar gave his desire. Because later on, this captain of the guard named Arioch, it's a cool name, Arioch, the captain of the guard, basically the captain of the army, his job is to kill all the wise men in all of Babylon. And I'm sure they've all gone to hide. Except Daniel. Because it says there in Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel comes up to Arioch. Daniel asks Arioch a question. Now, I think that's amazing. Arioch is out to kill you. And Daniel has enough guts to go up to him to ask him a question. Now, notice what it says in verse 14. Daniel replied to Arioch with prudence and discretion. He replied to Arioch with prudence and discretion. I mean, I think Daniel was a smart man. And yes, God worked on the heart of Arioch so that he would listen to Daniel but Daniel was also wise. He spoke with prudence and discretion. I mean, I don't know if he came in front of him and bowed down. He showed kindness. He showed humility. I mean, he could have gone in there with full guns blazing. He could have gone, gotten all in his face. I have rights. I do this. It's me, me. I don't know what he could have done. But I do know Daniel spoke with prudence and discretion. I think Daniel repeatedly is a person who lives wisely. He's not just a wise man in the sense that he can see visions and, and God uses him mightily. He also lives with wisdom. In a threatening presence, he speaks with prudence and discretion. Well, Arioch tells him, hey, the king has sent out a decree for us to kill all the wise men. Daniel asks, why is this decree so urgent that you have to kill everybody? And Arioch tells him the matter. It's this whole dream where he's scared to death and he wants an answer. 
So, Daniel says, all right, Ariok, I can imagine this big, muscular captain of the guard. And Daniel, you know, maybe in his 20s at this point, maybe 18, I don't know. He looks up at Ariok and says, take me to the king. I, I believe I can answer his question. Take me to the king. So I can imagine Ariok takes him to the king. Now, Ariok is probably thinking, if I can find a guy who can tell the king the dream and interpret it, I might look pretty good in his sight, and I might get some money and some wealth and some things out of this. So maybe I shouldn't kill Daniel here. You know what? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to take him to the king. And so he takes him to the king. And he goes in, and it, all it says there in verse 16 that Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. He comes suddenly before the king, which again is a scary thing. Daniel is standing courageously in front of a huge guard who wants to kill him. And then he says, hey, take me to the king. And you don't just go into the king's presence any time. But he goes in boldly, brought in by Arioch. And then he says to the king, hey, I can interpret your dream. Just grant me a time where I can interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar looks at Daniel and says, all right. He lowers his scepter. Maybe thinking, I'm just going to kill this wise man right here. But you know what? He's one of those Jewish lads. In fact, he, he was top of the class. He's one of those new, younger wise men that I brought in from Israel. I think they've got something about them. Remember, God's working behind the scenes, working in, in the working in the heart of pagan Gentile people to, to grant Daniel favor. And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying, you come back. I don't know how long he gave him. I would say a night, one day, because Nebuchadnezzar's not getting in his sleep and he is desperate to get this dream interpreted well it says that daniel says all right we're going to come back and nebuchadnezzar says come back and at a point in time i'm going to say tomorrow and you better be able to interpret that dream so daniel goes back and he finds his three friends and he says all right guys shadrach meshach and abednego i need you to pray i need you to get down on your knees i need you to fast and pray that God will give me the interpretation of this dream, that God will show me what this dream is about, that God will just work. Our life is on the line. So his friends begin to pray. You can imagine they drop to their knees. They begin to pray right there in front of their beds or in the corner of the room, wherever it happens to be. It says they beseech the God of heaven on behalf of Daniel so that he might know the dream. Daniel's just praying and praying. They're just trusting in Yahweh, but nothing's happened. Hours go by, and then it says, in the middle of the night, in a vision of the night, God comes to him in a dream. It says that Daniel had the ability to interpret dreams and to, to see visions. Now, dreams occur when you're asleep, right? But visions are sort of a, a disturbance in your normal consciousness. You're going through the day, you're just doing your normal thing, when all of a sudden Daniel, bing, would see a vision, something different that nobody else saw. He saw the supernatural world. Well, a dream 
you're sleeping and the God speaks to you through a dream. Well, it says here that in a vision of the night, he's sleeping. And God comes to him in a dream and says, Daniel, here is the vision. Here is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing. And Daniel sees it for the first time. And here's the interpretation. Daniel woke up the next day and immediately he blessed the God of heaven. And he says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever who to whom belongs wisdom and might. And he goes into this long poem of celebration to God. Yes, God has given me the dream. Yes, I know exactly what it is. Yes, he has given me the interpretation. So that morning, Ariok shows up, pounds on his door. All right, let me in. And they open the door and Ariok busts in and he's thinking, all right, I'm ready to kill you, Daniel, because I bet you've got nothing. He maybe raises his sword and Daniel says, stop. Take me before the king. I know what the dream was and I know how to interpret it. So Herak is thinking, whew, good, because I didn't want to kill you because, man, if I can get you before the king and you really can do this, man, I'm set for life. And so he drags Daniel out. And he brings him before the king. It says in verse 25, with haste. You can imagine he drags him through the streets of Babylon, up the streets of the, of the palace, into the presence of the king who's been pacing back and forth because he can't sleep because of this frightening dream. You can imagine he throws Daniel on the ground and he says, all right, King Nebuchadnezzar, listen, Daniel, he's got it. He knows what your dream was and he can interpret it. And in fact, it says, you know, Ariok says, I have found an exile from among the exiles from Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Notice he's saying, I found him. It was me. It was me. It was me. But that's not how it happened at all, right? Daniel was the one who talked to Ariok. Daniel was the one who said, send me to the king. But Ariok is trying to get in good with King Nebi. He wants some money out of this. So, the king declares to Daniel. You can imagine he sits on his throne, looks down at Daniel on the floor. Daniel looks up at the king on his throne, this mighty king who could kill him in a second. And the king says to Daniel, Are you able to make known the dream that I have seen? And its interpretation. Daniel. He looks up at him. And he begins to say. Well if you come back next week. We're going to find out what that dream was. And what the interpretation was. But I do want to say. The take-home message of all this story so far, I believe the take-home message is this, that God is sovereign and he is working behind the scenes 
in ways that we can't even understand. And don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. You know, wherever you are, if you're a young man, a young boy, a young girl, and you wonder where God is in your life, if you know the Lord is your Savior, don't lose hope. Pray. Seek His face. Try to find uh, other Christians for encouragement because God is working on your behalf. Remember Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to those that love God. And if you're an adult like me and you're old, you know, and you're, and you're worried about your family or you're worried about your finances or you're worried about politics or you're worried about the, the broader, you know, national story and what's happening and whatever it happens to be in your life. I, I, this week I struggled with faith myself and I keep this story brings me back. That God is sovereign. Do I trust him? Do I believe he loves me? If I've accepted his son Jesus as my savior, and if I'm willing to follow him and and to be loyal to Jesus and to say, you know what? He is my God and I'm going to follow him no matter what. If, if, if I've asked Jesus to save me and he's now my God, then that same God that's working on behalf of Daniel It's the same God working for me. And I may not see things and sometimes circumstances go against the way I want them to go or or the way I think they should go. But I've got to trust that I have an awesome God who is sovereign, who will bring me safely home. I just got to trust. Got to have faith. I've got to dare to be a Daniel. Baldhead Bible Podcast is created by Dr. John Katzian. Music composed and performed by Elijah Katzian. Edited by Lincoln Katzian. If you would like to listen to more of Baldhead Bible Podcast, please subscribe. New episodes added every week.